If you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 11, working through this incredible story of the New Testament, a true story, the narrative account of the early church. So we're in Acts chapter 11, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. So we're excited about continuing our study through Acts. We had a glorious sermon uh, last Sunday. If you didn't get to hear it, I want to encourage you to go online and listen to Genesis chapter 20, uh, preached by a, a, a guest preacher, a guest preacher uh, Michael Statton was with us and did a great job. I was so blessed by that message. I want to encourage you, if you didn't hear it again, to maybe go online and hear it. But today we're in Acts chapter 11, 1 through 18. The title of the sermon is Criticized for Preaching the Gospel. Criticized for preaching the gospel. The apostle Luke writes this, or Luke uh, writes this, he says, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed the animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers accompanied me and we went into the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity again to sing out worship songs about your sovereignty over all things. Thank you, God, for the reading of the word and the testimony of what's happening here in the book of Acts. We pray that you would continue to encourage us as a church to stand firm and to stand strong, to preach the gospel no matter what. Help us to have wisdom. Help unite us together as a body. Help us to learn what you want us to learn, God, so we can live it out in our lives, in our culture, in our community, and in this church. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, no one has been more criticized for preaching the gospel than the Lord Jesus Christ. You may think that maybe the apostles or the prophets were criticized more. You may think that the church fathers were criticized more. You may think that the reformers were criticized more. You may think that the martyrs of the faith were criticized more. I mean, after all, they did give their lives for what they believed in. And that would be true, but so did Jesus. No one has been more criticized for preaching the gospel than Jesus Christ. The criticisms of Jesus have existed since the first century. Let me briefly give you, by way of introduction this morning, and you'll see it there in your notes, but let me give you five ways that Jesus was criticized by his contemporaries. Number one, that Jesus had disobeyed the Mosaic law. 
They criticized Jesus, believing that he had disobeyed the law of Moses. The Pharisees and the scribes criticized Christ and the disciples for not observing laws that they thought were set up by Moses. Now, you need to know that, of course, Jesus never broke any true Mosaic law. The problem was is that the Jews added extra laws and traditions to the Mosaic law, and they accused Jesus of breaking those man-made laws. They criticized the disciples, for example, for not ceremonially washing their hands before eating. They criticized Jesus for eating with tax collectors. Uh, The Pharisees also criticized Jesus' disciples for gathering grain on the Sabbath. None of those broke clear Mosaic law, but they did break again some of the extra man-made laws. A second attack against Jesus they criticized him about was that Jesus falsely claimed divine authority. That's what they thought, at least. They thought that Jesus falsely claimed divine authority. Perhaps the boldest claim Jesus ever made was his claim to be God. Jesus said in John 10:30, I and the Father are one. Jesus said in John 14:9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Mark 14, 61, the high priest asked Jesus, point blank, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed, to which Jesus answered, I am. At this point, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further proof do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. A third criticism of Jesus would be this, number three, that Jesus had an illegitimate birth. Certainly, you remember that Mary was told by the angel that she would conceive and have a child and that she was to call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and he will reign forever and his kingdom will know no end. Mary then asked the angel, well, how will this happen since I am a virgin? And then we read in Luke 135, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you, and therefore the child born will be called holy, the son of God. Well, in the middle of Jesus's ministry, while he was confronting the Pharisees and said that they were doing the works of their father, implying they were doing the works of the devil, uh, they replied to him in John 8, 41, they said, we were born, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So they were making a criticism of Jesus, saying that he had an illegitimate birth. They said, hey, at least we know who our father was, but Mary doesn't know who her father was. And they were accusing him of being born to a mom who was out of wedlock, born to a mom who had committed fornication. And this would have been a great disgrace. So they used that against Christ. A fourth accusation they made against Jesus would be this, that Jesus was working for the devil. They actually accused Jesus by the miracles that he did, He'd been healing people, he'd been doing it on the Sabbath, he'd been casting out demons, and the unbelieving Jews didn't know how this was happening. So in Mark 3, it says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. A fifth accusation would be, number five, that Jesus had lost his mind, that he had lost his mind. Jesus' own family thought that he had lost it. I mean, the way he was talking, the things that he was saying and doing, they actually thought that he had gone insane. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Well, my point in sharing this with you this morning is just to remind you that people will always attack you and accuse you of crazy things when you preach the true gospel. They attacked Jesus, they accused him of being a blasphemous lawbreaker who was disgraced from his birth and was out of his mind and he worked for the devil. Now nothing could be further from the truth, right? Jesus was none of those things and yet this is what they accused him of and you have to remember what Jesus said to us in John 15, 20. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will also persecute you. Keep in mind, Jesus did nothing wrong. All the accusations brought against Jesus were false. Jesus never disobeyed the Mosaic law. He fulfilled it perfectly. Jesus rightly professed to be the son of God. The virgin birth is a result of the incarnation. Jesus never worked for the devil 
but rather confronted the devil. And Jesus never lost his mind. He always knew exactly what the Father had sent him to do. And so really, all of these criticisms were untrue. All fell short of exposing any deficiency in Christ. All of these criticisms actually showed problems with the critic, not with the one being critiqued. The problem was with the critic. Jesus' followers are still being crucified or criticized, I should say, and crucified today, maybe more than ever before. People accuse Christians today of hate speech because we affirm that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. People accuse Christians of being religious bigots because we affirm that the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to heaven. People accuse Christians of being unloving because we call people out of darkness and into light. Just get used to it, church. We're going to keep being criticized. Jesus was criticized. We're being criticized. This morning, we're going to see how Peter was criticized. In fact, Peter got criticized for preaching the gospel. And in this case, it wasn't actually the message that Peter preached, but it was his audience that he preached to. The Jews didn't like the fact that Peter's Gentile listeners in the house of Cornelius had become Christians. They discriminated against the Gentiles. And part of the reason for this is that they are, were called, the Jewish people were called to be different. They were called to be separated from the culture. They were even called to go to war at times, as you know, throughout the Old Testament with pagan nations. But now under the new covenant, the civil and the ceremonial law had been done away with. And Gentiles were accepted into God's family as fellow believers in Christ. And the Old Testament outer distinctions were to be done away with now that the new has come. This morning, we're going to look at this under three headings that show that Peter was criticized for preaching the gospel and how it was that he defended himself. We'll see how, number one, Peter was attacked for doing the right thing, verses one through three. Peter defended himself by using God's word, verses four through 14. And then number three, how Peter helped others change by his faithful testimony, verses 15 to 18. Let's start with number one. Peter was attacked for doing the right thing. If you're taking notes this morning, that first blank says questions about the conversion of the Gentiles. They had questions about these Gentile converts. Again, verse one, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So like today, back then, word spread quickly when something unusual happened. Now they weren't able to tweet about it, uh, but they were able to talk about it. And they were able to spread the word, and word got all over Judea, which is there in the area of Jerusalem. And so when Peter did return to the city of Jerusalem, which was the hub of Jewish culture and also the place where Pentecost happened, where the church was born, when, when God had poured out the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, it was on the Jewish people that, uh, that this had originated on, and that when they believed in the resurrection, they repented and they were baptized and they received the Holy Spirit. This all happened right here in Jerusalem. In fact, Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Acts 2 was primarily about the conversion of Jewish people. Then you remember that the whole idea of Acts is the gospel spreading. So after many converts were made there in Jerusalem, Philip, the evangelist, traveled to Samaria. And in Acts chapter 8, he preached the gospel in Samaria. And Acts 8, 12 says, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so the Samaritans, who were half Jewish and half Gentile, because when the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians, they intermarried with pagan nations and they never stayed true to their ethnic distinction and identity. And so the people of Samaria were a little bit swayed in their pure theology and they did not worship at the temple in Jerusalem like what was commanded in the Old Testament. And they also had a faltering faith that needed correction. But when the gospel was preached in Samaria, they repented. 
And they believed in the risen Christ. And when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans had repented and trusted Christ, they sent to them Peter and John to verify that their faith was indeed authentic. And at that time, Peter and John prayed for the Samaritans and they received the Holy Spirit. So the gospel converted Jews in Jerusalem, Samaritans in Samaria, and now the question is, has the gospel really converted Gentiles in Caesarea? And so here in verse one, the Jewish fellowship of the apostles and the brothers want to know how it was that the Gentiles had now also received the word of God. They have questions about the authenticity of the conversion of those Gentiles. And then we read in verse two, your next blank, questions about the uncircumcised Gentiles. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men. I'll stop right there. Well, here in verse two, we're talking about the circumcision party. You need to know that that refers to the Jews who had indeed been circumcised. Galatians chapter two, verse 12, Colossians 4.11, Titus 1.10, all refer to Jews as the circumcision party or men of the circumcision. And it was the circumcision party who was criticizing Peter for what had happened in Caesarea. In fact, the word criticize means to judge. It means to be at odds with. It means to have a dispute with someone, to take an issue with someone. So Peter gets back to Jerusalem and they say, hey man, we're confronting you because we don't know if what you did was the right thing. We have a problem with what you did when you took the gospel to Caesarea. And so we should take just a moment here and evaluate the concern of Peter's critics. I mean, this is a group of circumcised Jews in Jerusalem who had come to faith. So they are, we believe, fellow brothers. The text in verse 1 says, apostles and the brothers. And they're trying to process what it is that happened with the Gentiles. And they took issue with it because they understood God's covenant with Abraham was all about the salvation of lost people. It was all about the, the relationship, a special relationship that God had with his chosen people. So they're trying to understand what's going on. And so in order to understand a little bit better, maybe even the emphasis of circumcision, because that's obviously coming to the forefront here. It's what's being emphasized in verses two and three. Let's turn back to Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17, turn back there with me if you will. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant unfolding for us. Initially, part of it is given in chapter 12, again in chapter 15. But here in chapter 17, we see the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is circumcision. So Genesis chapter 17, verse one, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That's Abraham's job. His job is to acknowledge that God is God, that he's almighty, and he's to walk in a holy life of obedience to God. And then verse 2 says, this is God speaking again to Abraham, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be a father of a multitude of nations. We'll just stop right there. We already are seeing in the Abrahamic covenant that God intended to do more than just through Abraham's ethnic line. It, that through Abraham, there would be a multitude of nations, ethnicities that would be blessed through Abraham and through his, his lineage. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So again, God's talking about the covenant that he's making, a solemn promise to Abraham that he should be the father of a multitude of nations and not just the Jewish nation alone. Now skip down, if you will, to verse 9, Genesis 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, 
from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised so that my covenant be, so, so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his people, uh, excuse me, of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people and he has broken my covenant. Just wanted you to see the emphasis. This is a big deal to God. I know sometimes we talk about circumcision today and kids ask, what is circumcision? So dads, you can explain that to your kids when you feel like the time is right. You know, but the idea is like, this is no joking matter. I do remember uh, as I was sharing the gospel with a guy in the gym uh, back when I was in college and I had been witnessing to this guy for a while. He would pump a lot of weight. I would pump a little weight, just to be clear. Uh, so this guy came to Christ, and after he came to Christ, uh, he came into me one day. I was working out, and he came into me. He actually had his Bible with him. You know how new Christians are. They're fanatical. I like new Christians like that. And he said, Adam, he's like, I just read, I just, I just read in Genesis about being, about being circumcised. Do I need to get, and I'm like, hey, bro, don't worry about it. That's old covenant. That's Old Testament. It's about your heart, man. It's about your heart being circumcised. But it's interesting as you kind of think about this issue, there is a physical aspect for the, the, uh, the, the Jewish nation. Of course, it's still done today for various reasons, health concerns and of that nature. But I just wanted to remind you that this is a serious thing for God and God's people. And it's a serious thing, not just because God commanded it. He wanted it to be a constant reminder to every male in the Jewish nation that they were in covenant with God. So again, as Gentiles, we kind of look at it and be like, what's the big deal? It was a big deal to them. They've been living like this for a long time. You see how clear and how strong God's word. He had determined that there would be a physical circumcision that would be the sign or the mark of, uh, of every man who was part of God's family. And therefore, a circumcised person was someone who was identified as part of the offspring of Abraham. And if there was a man who was not circumcised and he was not part of this lineage, which means that he was outside of the covenant, circumcision and its symbolic significance became so ingrained in the Jewish consciousness and practice that they referred to themselves as the circumcised and to everyone else as uncircumcised. Judges 15, 18, 1 Samuel 14, 6, and 17, 26, Isaiah 52, 1, all point to this distinction. This view and vocabulary are both clearly on display here in the beginning of Acts chapter 11. Again, keep in mind that to the Jews, circumcision was even more than just an external act. It was a moral practice whether, uh, to determine whether or not you were going to obey or disobey God's clear command. And I would take it one step further to fully grasp the importance of circumcision, from, of, of circumcision for Israel. We need to understand that the nations and the cultures that surrounded Israel did not perform circumcision. None of the neighboring peoples uh, held to that same kind of sexual morality as Israel. Here's what we're getting at. The idea of circumcision also is an idea of purity. It was the idea that the male Israelites would be kept pure and they would follow God's covenant as given throughout the Mosaic covenant, particularly thou shalt not commit adultery. These peoples were often incorporated, the pagan people, and all types of sexual debauchery, even in their own style of pagan worship. God, however, called Israel to pursue holiness. In Leviticus 11:45, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And because of this pursuit of, of sexual purity, a devout Jewish man was to avoid any type of sexual immorality. A Jewish man knew that to commit the sin of fornication or adultery or to sleep with a prostitute would bring the full condemnation of the community upon himself as a result of him committing a grave sin. In contrast to this, again, were the Gentiles who tolerated, if not encouraged, gross sexual sin, even homosexuality. Adultery and homosexuality were considered capital offenses under God's law and could lead to being stoned to death. Now, needless to say, the standards of the Jews 
and those of the surrounding cultures were completely different. And the circumcision of every Jewish male was one way of underscoring that aspect of holiness. Circumcision made Israel different from the rest of the world visibly and manifested their unique position as God's covenant people in the ancient Near East. So as you can see, circumcision is no trifling matter. It marked the fact that Israel was to be separate from the other nations and to be holy before the Lord. And so the Jewish Christians, back here to Acts 11, the Jewish Christians, these are believers, they're just struggling with this secondary issue of what do we do with circumcision. The Jewish Christians here in Acts 11, referred to as the circumcision party, understood that Jesus was the Messiah. They understood that he was the fulfillment of all the prophets had foretold. They understood that Jesus was the Lord and Savior and the very Son of God. These Jewish Christians, however, did not understand that salvation was not only for the Jews who had waited for hundreds of years with great expectancy, but it was also for the Gentiles. If we disregard Israel's long history and the serious call to holiness represented by circumcision, we may be tempted to believe that these Jewish Christians in Acts 11 were exhibiting strictly an ethnical prejudice. But there is something a lot more than racial, racial prejudice here. There is this great, deep, and moral aversion that while it was still wrong, was somewhat understandable considering the history that we just reviewed. And so there are questions about the conversion of the Gentiles. There are questions about the uncircumcised Gentiles. And there are also, your next blank, questions about eating with the Gentiles. That's the last part of verse three. Not only did you go to these uncircumcised men, you ate with them. Questions about why was he eating with the Gentiles? As you know from Acts 10, Peter had a vision. And in Acts 10, nine through 16, if you look back chapter 10, verses nine through 16, on the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were still preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And a voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call uncommon. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. There's a reminder of the vision that he saw. In this vision, we are reminded that the Jewish people were instructed in the old covenant to observe certain and specific dietary restrictions. And a lot of people think that those restrictions were primarily in place for potential health benefits. And while I think that there are some health benefits to some of those restrictions, this is certainly possible, but I don't believe that that is ever clearly defined in Scripture. I would say that the bigger reason, even bigger than a health perk, would be a theological purpose that God's people were to avoid certain foods, excuse me, uh, simply because God wanted the Israelites to be separate from the culture. You can become like the people that you eat with. How, how, how can you become like them, you say? Well, it starts with a, a social signal of friendship and acceptance. I mean, go back to your own days in the cafeteria when you were in grades K through 12. You sat with who? Your friends, people who were like you, and you didn't sit with people who weren't like you, right? You had people that you would eat with and talk with, and the same is true today, right? You sit with people that you enjoy sitting with and eating with. In high school, you sit with your friends, and you have common conversation over common interest, even at the master's Mustang grill. There's certain tables that you sit at, certain tables you might avoid, or you could go to that special two-seater table, you know, the one by the fireplace, or the ones by the windows and have some really intimate conversation. It's always fun to walk by those tables just to see what's going on any particular week over at Masters. There could be new news developing. So the point I'm trying to make is that the, oftentimes one of the first marks of a budding relationship between a young man and a young lady would be that they would go out on a date to eat food. 
right? To say that you had dinner with someone is a big deal because it assumes more than just a superficial connection. It assumes some type of intimate connection, intimate conversation, and from that comes some type of intimate relationship. And I believe that this is the theological reason why God gave Israel dietary restrictions. God did not want his people mixing and mingling with the world. And if you don't eat with them, it's hard to socialize at a deeper level. Now, at times, this did go both ways, like what we read about with Joseph in Genesis 43, 32. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So I'm just saying this idea of eating, it did go both ways. But all through the Old Testament, the Jews were not to eat certain foods, which almost for certain would keep them from mixing with the Gentiles. And then in the New Testament, you have Jesus who did eat with tax collectors and with sinners. In fact, in Luke 5, 29 through 32, and Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining with him at the table and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here in Acts 11, again, the Jewish believers are struggling with how it is that they are to understand that the Gentiles of Caesarea have indeed come to saving faith. And how are they to process the fact that they have not been circumcised? And what are they to now do with Peter, who clearly disregarded the old covenant dietary restrictions by eating with these Gentiles? Peter is under attack He's being criticized. Peter has some legitimate questions that he must answer. Well, how do you do when you're criticized? How do you respond to criticism when people lack a full understanding of the situation you're involved in and they start asking questions and making assumptions that you're not handling the situation well? How do you defend yourself? What do you do when someone attacks you? Criticism could come from anywhere. It could come from outside the church. It could come from inside the church. How do you handle criticism? Well, in verses 4 through 14, we see how Peter handles it. Peter defended himself by using God's word. He defends himself by using the scripture. And so he starts off, verses 4 through 7, your next blank, Peter's vision of the sheet. Peter's vision of the sheet. He, uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 4, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, and I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending down, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So Peter is ready and prepare to explain his actions by communicating God's revelation to his accusers. And here again, we see the explanation of Peter's vision. Again, this is the second time that we're reading about this. The first time I already read to you from Acts 10, 9 through 16. Now Peter's repeating this exact story so that these truths might impact the Jewish fellowship there in Jerusalem in the same way it impacted Peter when he had the vision in Joppa. And as a reminder, this sheet came down from heaven. This was God's revelation to man, not man's effort to argue with or appeal to God. This was heaven's revelation. This was the way that God sometimes chose to reveal his word and even future events with his people. In Genesis 37, Joseph had a dream about how his brothers would bow down to him. In Genesis 41, Pharaoh had a dream about how there would be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about how his statue would come crashing down. In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a vision of the future of world history. Daniel 10 through 12, Daniel had a vision preparing Israel for time of distress and deliverance. The point I'm trying to make again is that the Jews knew full well that God often communicated faithfully with his people and with others 
through a dream or a vision. So Peter's vision should in no way be alarming to them. And as Peter looked closely, he saw animals, beasts, reptiles, and birds. This was a gathering of God's creatures that included clean and unclean animals. And then we read that Jesus said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Jesus's words were simple. Jesus's words were clear, right? He just simply says, rise, kill and eat. In fact, in this one sentence, there is one participle, the word rise or get up. So Jesus is saying, as you are getting up, I want you to And then it has two imperatives, one participle, two imperatives. Imperative number one, I want you to kill. This word means to take life. It means to slaughter. It means to sacrifice. Jesus wants Peter to kill these animals. And then imperative number two, to eat. This word means to take something in through the mouth. It means to ingest, to consume, or even to devour. There is force to Christ's words. There is a certain strength to Christ's words. There's a soberness to what Jesus is saying. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Obeying God's word is not always easy. It's not for the faint of heart. God's words are razor sharp. And then we read in verses 8 through 10, Peter's response, your next blank there, verses 8 through 10, Peter's response to the Lord. How did Peter respond to this? This happened three times, and it was drawn up to heaven again. And then we read uh, uh, back up to verse 8, but I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. And then this happened three times, and then the sheet was taken up into heaven again. So here we see that Peter has a little bit of a bad habit of saying, not so, Lord. You're right, he just got a little bit of a habit of when Jesus wanted to wash the disciples' feet, Peter told him in John 13, 8, you shall never wash my feet. When Jesus talked about the crucifixion, Peter rebuked the Lord in Matthew 16, 12 and said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. When Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times, Peter said in Matthew 26, 35, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And so Peter hasn't really had a good track record of accepting and obeying the words of Christ, especially when they were tough words with new concepts or personal sacrifice. But what does Jesus do? He doubles down in verse 9, and he says, no, this is, this is exactly what you're supposed to do. What God has made clean, do not call common. Jesus is saying, don't argue with me, Peter. I will make clean what I will make clean. And if it's, I say it's clean, it's clean, even if you say it's common or unclean. Almighty God will declare, he will decree, and he will decide what to make clean, and our only response should be, Lord, let it be so, in accordance with your word. I mean, who are we to tell God what to do? And in this vision, Christ is declaring all foods clean, and he is declaring as well that Gentiles will be brought into the family of God. Paul reminds us of this concept of God's sovereignty to determine what he does and how he does it. Romans 9, 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so verse 10 tells us that this happens three times, and then the sheet was drawn up again into heaven. This is emphatic. This was done so that Peter couldn't miss it. God only has to say or do something once, but when he does it three times, you know he means business. And so then we see in verses 11 through 14, Peter's trip to Caesarea. It says, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which where we were and sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. 
And so again, when the man from Caesarea arrived, Peter was told to go with them. Peter was also told to make no distinction. Notice that word, to make no distinction. This means do not differentiate. It means do not separate. In fact, get this, this exact same word that we already read in verse two. When they were criticizing Peter, it's the same word here where God tells Peter, make no distinction. The word distinction again, the word criticize, same word. And so here we're seeing that God's saying, look, don't make a distinction. You're not to make a judgment. You're not to come down on this in a way that you think is right. I'm the one telling you what to do. And at this point, you need to trust me and you need to come to me and you need to submit to me and you need to understand that this is happening. And so we see here that there's now a connection that Peter makes uh, with, with Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, uh, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, verse 35 of chapter 10, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So to show no partiality means that God does not save people based on their ethnicity or based on their education are based on their economic status. God is not a respecter of persons. He can, and he will save anyone at any time from anywhere, and he does so for his own glory and according to his own divine prerogative. Our job is to simply be the messenger. And that's why Peter goes, and that's why Peter also takes with him, this text says, six brothers as witnesses to what was going to happen. He had to have three witnesses in the Jewish culture to verify things. And so he's doubled that plus his own testimony as an apostle. And so Peter goes and he declares a message by which Cornelius will be saved, him and all of his household. And we know from Acts 10, 34 through 43 that what Peter preached was the gospel. When he got there, he shows up and he gives them a full gospel message. Peter preached peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord over all. Peter preached about Jesus's miraculous works. Peter preached about Christ's crucifixion. Peter preached about the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. Peter preached that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. And Peter preached also that everyone who believes in him and receives forgiveness of sins uh, will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. So what was Peter's defense against his accusers? He simply defended himself by using the word of God. If you try to defend yourself using science, you will always fall short. If you try to defend yourself using psychology, you will fall short. If you try to defend yourself using history, you'll fall short. If you defend yourself using experience, you will fall short. If you defend yourself using human wisdom, you will fall short. Our only defense is the word of God. And if you can't defend yourself with the word of God, then you need to re-question why you're taking a certain position of anything that you believe or anything that you do. Our job is to come back to the scripture so Peter is sharing with them, look, I did what I did in Caesarea because that's what God told me to do. And as God revealed that to me, I'm now revealing to you what he revealed to me. You know, I love the verse we talk about, it's our job just to be the messenger and to proclaim God's word truthfully, a, a verse that preachers love, and we should, is 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. As H.B. Charles notes about this verse, he says, the term rightly handling or dividing basically means to cut it straight. It was used of a doctor making an incision on a patient for surgery, an architect designing a house, or a construction worker making a straight path or road. Paul would have used it as a tent maker, but he uses it in 2 Timothy to counsel his ministerial protege to proclaim the word faithfully and clearly. And as preachers, we're on a quest to cut the Bible, that is, to cut it straight, and then to reveal that life-giving truth to our people. And that requires a posture of humble and lifelong learner, the spirit of one who says to the Lord, teach me, and the one who is willing to tell others, show me how to make progress in learning and preaching this craft. 
Again, it's just a reminder, Peter's been taught. Now he's teaching these fellowship of other believers there in Jerusalem exactly what it is that God's doing. So Peter was attacked for doing the right thing. Peter defended himself for using, by using God's word. And then number three, Peter helped others change by his faithful testimony. Let's look at your next blank, the identification with Pentecost. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it had on us at the beginning. Now, again, we know from Acts 10 that Peter had been preaching the gospel. It's not like he had just walked in, opened his mouth, and the Holy Spirit fell out of the sky. That wouldn't be, he's summarizing what happened here. We understand that the point is that Peter is making is that he had been preaching the gospel. They had been anticipating receiving the message of the gospel. And as Peter was preaching and they were receiving this gospel message, Peter had had already talked about Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, the fact that Jesus again was the judge of the living and the dead. Peter had always uh, already said that everyone who believes in Jesus will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. It was after that, at that moment, while Peter was still speaking, that the Holy Spirit fell. And we're told that those six witnesses of the circumcised were amazed because the Holy Spirit was being poured out on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So here, Peter is saying, this happened to them just like it happened to us at the beginning. This was a reference to Pentecost. He's saying what happened to them in Caesarea to the Gentiles is the same thing that happened to us Jews back in Acts 2, verses 2 through 4, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 2.11 says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is a Pentecostal church, hallelujah, right? I mean, this is what happened. And Peter's saying, look, what happened in Caesarea is exactly what happened to us at Pentecost. Who are we to say to them that what you have is not from God? They're doing the same thing we did. And that's what happened in Acts 2. God gave them utterance to speak in other, I believe, real languages, because they heard it as real languages. Glossa there refers and translated as a language, the mighty works of God. This is what has now happened to the Gentiles in Caesarea. And I believe what God's doing here is he's unifying his church. Same conversion, same Holy Spirit, same gifts of the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. So Peter's saying, don't you be arguing with me. What happened at Pentecost is what happened there. In fact, some people call it, I told you last week, the Gentile Pentecost. That's what Caesarea is. It's the Gentile Pentecost. And so there's this identification with Pentecost, but there's also, in verse 16, the connection with Holy Spirit baptism. Verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So John is now saying, look, I'm gonna connect what happened in Acts 10 with Pentecost, and now I'm going to connect what happened in Acts chapter 10 with John the Baptist's baptism, when apparently John the Baptist had said, and Jesus had repeated these same words, and they're found in Matthew 3.11, when John the Baptist was going to baptize Jesus Christ, John the Baptist actually said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's what Matthew 3.11 says. Now again, I don't have time to today to get into all of this, but I just want you to quickly see there are actually five baptisms that I see in the New Testament. Number one, there's John the Baptist's baptism. John the Baptist's baptism, we just read about it from Matthew 3.11. It's also found in Acts 19.4. And this is where John the Baptist's baptism, according to Acts 19.4, was a baptism of repentance. This is not believer's baptism. 
This is John the Baptist simply getting Jews ready for Christ. He's a forerunner. He's preparing them. He's trying to get them out of their Judaism. He's trying to get them out of their legalism. And he's saying, hey, you guys need to get ready. There's somebody about to come and you got to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And that's John the Baptist's baptism. Nobody does that today because he served his purpose as the forerunner of Christ. Then you have, number two, believer's baptism. That's what we're most commonly familiar with, believer's baptism, immersed in water. We get that from all throughout the New Testament and the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what Peter did in Acts 2 at Pentecost. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so believer's baptism is the idea that if you are a believer in Christ, and you have a conscious conviction of your sin and awareness of the, the substitute of Jesus dying in your place. And by repentance and faith in him and in him alone, you are a born-again believer. Then you're commanded as a believer to be baptized, I believe, by immersion as the scriptures teach. And then there's number three, spirit baptism into Christ. Spirit baptism would say, you could say this one would be more of a metaphorical baptism. No, no H2O used here, no literal water used here, but you're baptized into Christ. It's a reference to salvation. It's Romans 6.3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Or Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So spirit baptism is what happens to each one of us at regeneration. It's when you're born again, you're now born into Christ, that would be spirit baptism. Number four, baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on in this verse. He's saying, and he's talking about there in verse 16, he says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so there's this idea of this transition throughout the New Testament where some people were saved, then they would get baptized a little bit later. You see that particularly in Acts 8 with Samaria. As I told you, when Philip went and he preached, they got saved, but they still sent Peter and John up there to verify, lay hands on, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that that happens anymore. I believe that when you're saved, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit at that same time. It, throughout Acts, it happened as a progression until the fullness of the scripture was given to us and the understanding. So, but it did happen here in the New Testament. That's being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then number five, a baptism of fire. Now, a lot of times when you just re read that and say that, you're like, yeah, it's fire. But in the context it's given in Matthew 3.11, when John the Baptist again said, there's one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's where this verse stops in 16. But if you go back to Matthew 3.11, it says, and fire. And that's not a reference as to being fired up. That's a reference in that context to judgment. And he's saying that those will be those who are baptized into fire, meaning they'll be judged by God. And that reference again, Matthew 3.11 and Luke 3.16 mentioned that. I just wanted to throw that out there. You can look at that a little bit more if you want. But here, again, he's saying, look, John the Baptist did talk about the fact that those who are in Christ would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's what happened to us at Pentecost. That's what happened to the Samaritans in Samaria. And that's what happened to the Gentiles in Caesarea. Let's move on. We've seen the identification with Pentecost, the connection with spirit baptism. See the realization that I've been in God's way. I've been in God's way. That's what he's saying in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I could stand in God's way? It's like, finally, I think Peter's getting it. Remember all the times he rebuked Jesus saying, not so, Lord, not so, Lord, not so, Lord. He's like, man, I've been a dummy. I've been in God's way. I've been telling him what to do. Now I'm being told what to do and I'm getting with the program. If God gave them what God gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, then who was I to stand in God's way? I think Peter is finally getting it and may God help us get it too, right? You don't want to end up like Peter. You don't want to end up like Jonah in chapter four talked about he didn't, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. In fact, that's why he got on a ship and went to Tarshish to the edge of the world because he did not want to do what God called him to do, because when he did what God called him to do, God saved the Ninevites, and they were disgusting 
to Jonah. He didn't like that people group because they were a rather harsh and brash people group who, when they conquered other nations, would cut them into pieces. So he just did not like them at all, and he didn't want to see them get saved. And yet in Jonah chapter 4, after the Ninevites come to Christ, Jonah pitches a fit, and he gets upset about it, and he was uh, angry at God. And so basically Jonah, at the end of the book, was starting to get in God's way, at least in his mindset. And we don't want to be like that, right? We want to be those who say, look, we're just here to preach the gospel. We're happy for anybody who gets saved at any time, at any point, God forbid that we would withhold God's work of salvation from anyone. And now we see the last part here, how this all ends up. Verse 18, the transformation that glorified God. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. It's a beautiful verse. They are nagging Peter. They are building their case based on all of their Mosaic teaching and all of their Judaism. And yet now Peter is like, look, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. He ties it all together from Scripture. He, he reveals to them the latest installment of Revelation in his vision. And when they heard it all, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Thank God that they were moved in that moment by Peter's faithful teaching, by his proclamation of the truth. They were moved internally. They got it. They understood. The Holy Spirit at that point even enlightened them, opened up their heart and their mind so that they could see exactly what it was that God was doing. I mean, what more could an evangelist ask for? When he did what God called him to do, he brought revival there in Caesarea. Now he's coming home. And while initially people were criticizing him, now they're starting to get it. It's because Peter was being faithful. As you think about that, let's move to our take-home questions. Can you look at that last part there at the bottom of your outline just to wrap this up? Have you ever been criticized for preaching the gospel or doing the right thing? If so, how did you respond? You ever been criticized where maybe a legalist approached you, a newer Christian in the faith approached you, a person with maybe a different conviction on secondary or tertiary matters approached you, and they criticized you for maybe what you did or how you did it? How did you respond? I hope that you'll take a note from Peter's life and just say, you know what, let me just take you to the word. Let me just tell you, you know, Peter wasn't getting super feisty. He wasn't arguing with them in a negative way that we see. He wasn't throwing them under the bus he didn't say, you're a bunch of heathens. You know, he's like, hey, let me just tell you. I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. What a great conversation. And you see how it won them over in verse 18. Second take-home question, do you have any legalistic tendencies that you don't want to give up because you think that those things make you more holy? If we're not careful as Christians, this happens to us all the time. You might think just because you don't drink alcohol. You might think just because you don't watch movies. You might think just because you homeschool. Boy, it's getting really quiet in here. You know, it's just, a, it's just a reminder to us, right? Like, you can do whatever you want. We support all of those different liberties of doing or not doing, but don't let that be a source of division. Don't come up to somebody and say, this is a gospel issue, and who, who are you doing this with them and that? And Now, obviously, if somebody's in clear sin, we want to talk about it. It's an appropriate conversation, but let's not be legalists. Let's be those who say, hey, here's what the Word of God says this is how we're living, and as we're living how God's called us to live, we're loving people, we're seeing people come to Christ, and we want to love those people when they come to Christ and not look down our noses at them. And then the third question here, when shown from Scripture what the Bible says about the salvation and sanctification, do you resist or fall silent and glorify God? In other words, when you take another look at what does the Bible really say about being born again, and what does the Bible say about growing in holiness, and you see something in the scripture that maybe um, adjusts your thinking on a certain practice, do you resist that? Or do you do what these guys did in verse 18? They just fell silent. They were like, we don't have anything else to say, and they just glorified God. What a great response to the preaching of the gospel and to Peter sharing 
with these uh, Judaizers exactly what God happened, and God helped them grow and mature as well. Well, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, we want to encourage you that on this day, as you've heard the preaching of the gospel throughout this sermon, that you would have an opportunity to respond to these truths of Christ dying in your place and providing salvation. And so as we, after we sing our last song, there's going to be a couple of folks right over here. We'd love to talk to you about what God's doing in your heart and life. You might be a Christian today and you're struggling with something going on in your life. We would love to pray with you. Our prayer room is always open. It's just behind this wall here in that room, just on the other side of those doors. And it's just an opportunity for us to say, you know what, we want to respond to what God's doing. Maybe God's stirring something in you. We're always available to serve you in any way that we can. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this morning, opportunity for us just to look at Acts chapter 11, a full chapter of information and reviewing information and yet just more understanding, deeper grasp of the significance of this transformation from the old to the new covenant, from Christians being Jews to being Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles to us understanding that all that really matters is Christ ultimately. We want to preach God's word. We want to love your people. We want to move away from any type of of, uh, distinction or favoritism about someone's ethnicity or someone's education or their economic status. God, we just want to love people. I feel like so many times the church hasn't represented that well over the years. Here's an opportunity for us to open our arms and open our hearts to those who aren't like us so that we could share that message that you've called us to share like Peter did with Cornelius and to see great fruit of gospel-believing people being brought into your family. And I pray that this week, as we're at work and in our neighborhoods and at school, God, that you would help us to faithfully represent your truth and your word in a way that would glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.